When you listen to the nightly news, key indicators are nearly always cited to show how the economy may or may not be growing. But what is this so-called growth, and and what if it doesn't provide the answers or create jobs? What, in fact, if enough is enough? Here's Rob Dietz of SteadyState.org. Now, your book Enough Is Enough is widely endorsed, particularly by Noam Chomsky and Tom Hartman. At what point did you realize that economically this is just not a possibility anymore? Well, for me, Claudia, I think it it came about as a a, a process over time. Uh, you know, when you look at uh, environmental statistics, you know, when you look at climate change issues, when you look at what's happening to our soils, our, our biological diversity, uh, you get a really scary picture. At the same time, when you look at what's happening socially around the world, that we've got a billion people going to bed hungry each night, those kinds of, uh, you know, as those pieces of evidence uh, pile on each other, you really start to realize that our out-and-out pursuit always of more really doesn't make any sense and that we've got to learn to accept the wisdom of enough. People have a Pavlovian response to the economy. They look at the Dow Jones is going up or it's gone down. There's no regard to the quality. Do you know any alternative measures of progress, of happiness? Of course, there is the happiness index. This is, uh, this is an important point. Like you say, are there any pockets out there of people that are looking into whether all this growth is worthwhile? And the answer, fortunately, is yes. Uh, as, you, as you noted, this happiness index, uh, it's, uh, the, the New Economics Foundation has come up with the Happy Planet Index, which looks at how do we take the resources that are available to us and turn that into long and happy lives without undermining the life support systems of the planet? And uh, several nations are, are doing fairly well on that index. The United States, it, it turns out, is actually ranked 114th. So even though we lead the world in, in economic output, in gross domestic product, uh, you know, we're number one there, but we're number 114 on this Happy Planet Index. So, 114 out of? Uh, I don't know the total number of countries they were able to measure, but it's probably somewhere around 150 or so. So really, really close to the bottom. Right. Well, and the reason is that in order to live the lifestyle that we have here in America, we consume resources far beyond what's sustainable. So our, our ecological footprint is, is well beyond uh, what, what could be sustained. You know, the stats are that if everybody consumed like Americans across the globe, we'd need four more planet Earths. There's a definite exploitation of the, the American consumerist culture. And a lot of it has to do, you know, you mentioned, Claudia, this, this sort of obsession with growth without, without questioning it. And unfortunately, that's become a part of our culture. You know, politicians, uh, the economic pundits, certainly marketers, business people, you know, the general public, we're all united behind this wacky idea that we can grow the economy infinitely in a, on a finite planet. And uh, being so united by that, yeah, we're exporting that uh, to, to anybody else out there that's willing to go down that path as well. 
Now, your background, Rob Dietz, you are an economist, environmental sustainability expert, and key point is that it is possible to develop an economy or to revamp the existing economy to fit within biophysical limits. Well, you know, some of the economists that I've spoken to, they will claim, well, the only way out of poverty is to grow the economy. And it has worked for, for some nations in the past. Uh, but you see that we've had you know, 50 years of growth. You know, basically, uh, after World War II, many nations made economic growth their top priority and succeeded fantastically at it. And yet we find ourselves today in this position where there are more people than ever before in this state of poverty. Uh, and I think it, it just has to do with uh, economists putting on the blinders. You know, th this worked for, for some nations in the past, so therefore it's got to work uh, going forward, but they're not considering the consequences of that growth. And, you know, before when we were growing the economy, uh, we had ample space and resources to uh, to take that on. But now that we're living in a more constrained world, a world with uh, 400 parts per million carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, we've got to rethink what we're doing economically. And that's why it's time for this transition away from the, the maddening pursuit of more uh, to one where we we do recognize that enough is enough. How do you persuade that huge group who's simply going to say to you, Rob Dietz, you know what? Growth is the only way and climate change is a load of bull. Yeah, well, you know, that group uh, certainly needs convincing, uh, certainly needs to be paying attention to what our, our top science experts are saying. You know, it's, it's somewhat ironic that if you think growth and technology are the best way forward, uh, it's ironic that we're we're cutting funding for basic research right now, and and I think that group would uh, you know the the deniers they would be happy with uh, you know smaller smaller research budgets uh, you know cutting those things, but stepping back a moment instead of convincing them we actually people who do believe in that that we are undermining the life support systems of the of the planet people who do believe the science that's uh, that's overwhelmingly supporting the the fact that we're changing uh, the stability of our climate we need to come together and form a consensus around the idea of a non-growing economy. It's not, you know, this, this sort of economy, uh, which Herman Daly, uh, a really well-regarded economist and an actual hero of mine, he, he calls it a steady-state economy. And it's an economy where we have a stable number of people consuming a stable, number, a stable amount of, of materials and energy. And this kind of economy is not considered uh, among progressive circles uh, really any more than it is among conservatives. It's really not even a political issue. It's uh, an issue of survival and of trying to live well within our means. People are living in a time in the United States when they're potentially better informed than they've ever been. What would you put it down to? So I think one of the things, you say we're better informed, 
but I also think we are overloaded with information. And so, you know, when we have a way of looking at the world, uh, it's easy to accept information that supports our worldview and also easy to just uh, disregard or reject information that, that comes up against it. And I know with this growth issue, I've faced that, you know, in the past, I didn't want to believe that continuous growth was a problem, and I, I basically put my stock in, in technological advancement as the, the way to overcome the limits to growth. But once I started studying it and, and kind of forced myself to question my basic assumptions, I realized that uh, we needed another way. And you know, I wanted another way so badly, that's why I worked with, with Dan O'Neill to, to write this book. It's a question of debt. The part that war has played, one of the main engines of growth is war. It's a very good way of pump priming the economy, it boosts the defense stocks. What is your opinion about it and how does it relate to your sustainable economy in a world of finite resources? Yeah, I think it gets back to what is the purpose of your economy. And, you know, you're you're exactly right. Some industries like uh, war, uh, if we can call these industries, but the, the industry that's, that's profiting from wars, uh, industries that profit from crime and, and prisons and all of these things, uh, you know, you're right, it, it pump primes the economy, it, it provides uh, for economic growth, but you have to question, you know, what exactly are we growing here? And that's where one of Herman Daly's terms, uh, I like it an awful lot, it's, uh, he's coined the phrase uneconomic growth. And that's growth that costs us more than it's worth. And so when you look at what's actually growing in the economy, you know, if it's your military-industrial complex fighting wars uh, that, you know, that are, that are meant to safeguard uh, resources that are becoming more and more scarce or, uh, or, or, or if you're looking at prisons that are being built to, to house an ever bigger criminal population, doing these things, are, you know, these are adding to our GDP but actually decreasing our well-being. And so we need an economy that aims for maximizing that well-being rather than maximizing economic output. As you point out, 2% of adults own more than half of all the household wealth, not in the States, but in the entire world. What do you say to those people who would say, Rob Dietz, you know, this is good, but we want no part of it because we don't want to give up what we have? Yeah, well, you know, I think there's probably going to be some forcing on that front. Uh, you know, as the people who... Uh, you know, if we think of it as the haves and the have-nots, you know, the, the have-nots, it's, you know, it's such a huge majority, as you've just pointed out, that understanding that uh, the outrage that can build when, when, when we understand what's actually going on. You know, I recently looked at, um, you know, it was reported that the top hedge fund manager earned $1,057,692 per hour in 2012, as much as the average American family makes in, in something like 21 years. He made that in one hour. 
the changes that we're talking about are, are quite profound in the economy. Uh, and the only way that they're really going to come about is through crisis. You know, as we, and you will see crises as we continue trying to grow an economy against limits that are based in, in physics and ecology. In ecology. So as those crises come down, uh, that's our opportunity to get the changes we need. Uh, and I, I, I honestly believe that uh, it's going to take that, that sort of a, a push. Um, and, you know, I, I also think that the ideas can cascade on one another, the solutions that we provide for how to build this economy. If you can get one of them rolling, it can actually start uh, a, a, another one rolling. It's kind of like, a, you know, people always talk about how problems compound upon one another, but I think solutions also have an opportunity to compound on each other. One of the main indicators of the U.S. economy is consumer spending. Not only is it considered a positive, but it is an actual economic indicator. We now have to gauge our financial, fiscal, national economic health, depending on how much bling people are buying in the mall. Well, I think it's a, a kind of a, a zombie economics for, for a nation and, uh, or any community to follow. Uh, you know, to think that we're doing good by consuming as much as possible is, is really quite insane. Uh, but that's what our culture pushes. And I've certainly been a part of that culture. You know, in the book I describe a, a poster that I actually had on my wall when I was, uh, when I was a kid. And it, it shows a big seaside mansion with five fancy cars in the, in the garage and the, uh, the caption on the poster is justification for higher education. And I think that's, uh, you know, a fairly commonly held, you know, it's, it's kind of meant as a joke, but I think it's, it's a commonly held viewpoint that, you know, the, the idea is to, uh, to make it big. It's this lottery mentality that we've, we've got in the United States. And, uh, the problem is it doesn't lead to, uh, to happiness. Sure, if you are not consuming enough to meet your, your basic needs and, and get some comforts in your life, then, yeah, consuming more is valuable. But once you pass that point, more does not lead to, to increased happiness. What we really need to be focusing on is our relationships with others, being active, uh, being mindful of what's happening around us, continuous learning. Uh, the research is clear. These are the kinds of things that lead to, to, that, to the feeling of satisfaction, to a life well lived. At what point did you realize that the balance of that particular model was not one that you wanted to follow personally? Well, you know, I, I think it was uh, building over time, but I, I honestly remember uh, way back when I was a young kid, maybe 10 or 12 years old, uh, I was sent to clean up my room. And I went up there and, and I was, uh, you know, shuffling around all these plastic toys and, uh, you know, trying to organize them into my uh, overloaded closet. And I, I remember uh, having the realization that I'm sitting here shuffling around this stuff that I don't even care about uh, when I could be doing anything else. I could be playing outside with my friends. I could be doing something that I actually wanted to do rather than 
uh, you know, organizing plastic trinkets that, uh, you know, might have been fun for a half hour after I got them, but then really added nothing to the quality of my life. So, you know, little moments like that definitely persuaded me. And then, you know, meeting uh, inspiring people along the way who really were studying the, the truths behind what it means to achieve sustainable development. And that's where Herman Daly's works were really influential on me. And in fact, I now edit a blog called The Daily News, named after him, uh, spelled D-A-L-Y. And uh, so, you know, I think it builds over time, but there are those instances where you can realize the bankruptcy you know, the emptiness that comes with the consumerist culture. Now to your specifics, and you talk also about local currency and the whole revamping you think that the financial system needs. Well, what local currency can do for us, one of the most important things is it can add resilience into our economy. You know, in, a, in your own community, you don't really have control at all over uh, national currencies. And so if they should fail, uh, what do you fall back on? Well, if you've got a local currency in operation, uh, that's exactly what you can fall back on. And at the same time, it promotes a, uh, a, a, a thriving local economy. As you, you know, there are a lot of studies that have been done that you know, as you pay money out into your local economy, uh, there's a lot of leakage. It goes elsewhere. But if you're operating with a local currency that's only valid within your community's jurisdiction, well, you don't have that same kind of leaking away from your economy. You have uh, transactions that that keep money circulating in the local economy and, and promote thriving local businesses. So it's, uh, it's a really, really important way for getting your local economy going and for uh, building that resilience in. So explain the interplay that you see uh, and what do you mean by full reserve banking as, it, as outlined in your book? Right. Well, so right now, the way money is created uh, is widely misunderstood. Most people think that the government prints money and, and that's where it comes from. And while it is true the government prints money, that's such a small percentage of the actual money that's in circulation. Uh, we looked at the figures for the UK and they're uh, probably very similar for the United States where 97% of the money in circulation comes in the form of debt from private banks. But what does that mean? Well, the idea is that if I go into a bank and I ask them uh, for, a, for a loan, for a mortgage, and uh, let's say uh, they look at my finances and it's a little better than, than what you'd expect for a writer or something like that, and they, they actually approve my loan. Well, where did the money come from that they give to me? It didn't come from their vaults. It didn't come from anywhere. They create it out of thin air. They take the money uh, from nowhere and they deposit it in my account. So then I've got to go out into the economy, earn the money to pay back that principal, but I also have to pay interest. And this is one of the key reasons why we've got to keep the economy growing. With this debt-based money uh, and with interest payments, there has to be more money available in the future than there is 
right now. And of course, that means since we now know that all the money is coming from uh, from these loans from banks, that means there have to be more loans in the future. So the idea here is that we've got to pull that power back out of the banks and make them have to have that money in their in their accounts before they can uh, just you know, without allowing them to create it out of thin air. And that would restore this balance between saving money and investing money rather than uh, simply being able to, to create money from nothing. How do we persuade the gnomes of Zurich or, or the Wall Street bankers, the, the hedge fund manager that's making a million dollars an hour? They psychologically cannot let go. They are addicted not just to growth, they're addicted to greed. Yeah, well, I think there's two ways. One we've already talked a little bit about is the crisis method, and that's really what got the Occupy movement going, you know, the, the financial crisis that came down in 2007, 2008, uh, developed enough outrage to spark, uh, you know, a, a nationwide and global movement. Um, but you saw that the reaction was to prop up the banks to, you know, with, with very little substantive change that came about. So, you know, apparently that crisis wasn't big enough to get the, the structural change that we need. Um, so, you know, the next time that, uh, that we suffer from that sort of, from a financial crisis of that magnitude or maybe even bigger one, will be ready to, uh, to push forward with these changes. A second way is looking at the inspiring models that are happening out there. You know, in our, in our chapter on changing the financial system, we opened it with the story of, of John Fullerton, who was this rising star with J.P. Morgan back in the 80s and 90s. He was the second youngest person to become a partner there. And he was uh, very much involved in the creation of financial derivatives and, and you know, engineering some of the, the problematic financial instruments that uh, helped bring about the, the, the crisis in, in 2008. And he's uh, a really interesting character. There he was embedded in the, the world of investment banking, and he realized that we can't continue this way. This is not the financial system that will help us develop a sustainable economy. And so he, he basically dropped out of, of the, the world of private banking and started looking at alternative models. And so now he's got a nonprofit organization called the Capital Institute, which is exploring how do we get big money, big investments to flow into enterprises that, uh, that, are, that move us toward life, that move us toward uh, well-being rather than just seeking to extract as much profit as possible out of the system. So has he become a pariah on Wall Street? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I mean, you know, he's a very, uh, uh, he, he's, he's a well-regarded person with, uh, you know, a lot of connections and you know, super personable. So, you know, I think uh, one of the things that makes people like him inspiring is that they can transition between those two worlds. You know, he can go and speak with, uh, with his Wall Street uh, colleagues because he's he understands the language he knows the systems uh, and yet he's uh, 
taken on uh, the the difficult task, you know, of, of diving in on these sustainability issues. And so uh, he serves as a uh, the, the kind of person who can bridge those two worlds and hopefully, uh, you know, start to bring more of his, his old Wall Street colleagues over to, uh, to the sort of economy that we're talking about, one that recognizes enough and overcomes this, this shortcoming with greed. Jobs and, and healthcare. Yeah, well, you know, jobs becomes the the key political issue. You know, the the main reason that politicians are so invested in growing the economy is that they want to the economy to provide jobs. And you know, when when people are out of work, all kinds of bad things happen. We know that. And uh, the way the economy is set up right now, when it slows down, when we have uh, you know, a quarter without growth or a year without growth, uh, you know, the, the, we lose jobs and, and, and that's when the politicians get incredibly nervous and that's why they're uh, supporting growth the way they are. So what we, what we need instead, though, growth is a, is a very blunt tool for trying to add jobs to the economy. What we need instead are explicit jobs policies that ensure that people who want to work can work, that ensure that work that needs to be done is getting done. And so two examples of that are, are work time reduction, which means that we, we share jobs, uh, we make it easier for people to have part-time work who want it, um, we shorten the, the, uh, the working week so that uh, we can share the number of jobs around more uh, effectively. And the idea here is trading some of our income for time. You know, who, who, there are a lot of people that would prefer to have more time on their hands to do the things that they want to do rather than spending it all on the job. Another example is guaranteed jobs, where we have uh, the government as the employer of last resort. And this is, uh, you know, we have a very successful historical example with the Civilian Conservation Corps where people went out and did work that needed to be done, like infrastructure development and, uh, and ecological restoration, and they developed skills that they could use for a lifetime and uh, got to, to go to work and, and gain all the positives that came with that. But in an era where government is considered the bogeyman, I mean, any government, any government at all, how can you persuade people that an FDR-style New Deal of any sort is something that isn't anathema to the American dream? Well, you know, in terms of persuading people, uh, you're facing a lot of competition for their attention. Um, but... Again, I think the way that things are going to change is that we know that, that this economy, which is trying to, uh, to bypass the laws of physics, it can't succeed. And uh, we, as we're hitting more and more limits to growth, we're going to see more and more crises. And as those crises come down, people are going to be asking for, they're going to be calling for something different. And what we get is going to be completely dependent on the ideas that are in front of them. 
And so that's why we've put the ideas of a sustainable and fair economy into our book enough is enough and hopefully uh you know enough people will read that and and read similar works like herman daly or or brian check's new book supply shock so that that's the idea that's lying around that we can develop a a steady state economy that works for both people and the planet you talked about your, your policy that government would be the guaranteed employer of last resort. Healthcare would be part of that package, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, we didn't go into much detail on healthcare, but the idea of people who are stuck in a job simply uh, that they don't like, that they don't feel is uh, tied to their purpose in life, simply to provide uh you know, insurance for their family, it, it, this is a, a model that can't really work. And so I think we do need to figure out our, our health care. We've got to figure out uh, a way to provide health care. You know, here we, we're, we're, we have all this profit, all of this hugely productive, we've got this hugely productive economy. We, we certainly can pay for health care for citizens so that we're not tied into into jobs that that we don't really want to be doing. But how can we pay for healthcare when uh, there are in fact people advocating that they should pay no tax at all? Well, we need taxes certainly to pay for public goods, uh, public services that benefit all all citizens. Uh, you know, this whole issue of tax evasion and offshoring, uh, we've really got to 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 close those out, uh, but there's plenty of room for tax reform. Uh, one of the, the tax reform ideas in Enough is Enough is that, uh, you know, look, if we need, we need to limit the amount of, of material and energy that's flowing through the economy to levels that our ecosystems can, uh, can withstand. And so the idea here is that Take your taxes and, and put them on, on, on things that you want to limit in the economy. Like the carbon tax. Sure, like carbon tax or a tax on, on fuels. or you know, The idea is that you tax bads instead of goods. So the things that you don't want, like, uh, you know, like air pollution, you tax that. And so by raising revenue that way, you can then lessen uh, taxes on other things like income so that uh, we are we're, we're basically shifting the burden onto those entities that are causing harm rather than than those that are causing good and some of these tax programs they're they're so you know it's so logical that uh, you know you could get a lot of people behind them but of course the problem is you know getting the 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 corporations out of the political influence game, and that's another big area that uh, you know that requires uh, our attention, and is another of the cascading solutions. Rob Dietz, you are the author of Enough Is Enough: Building a Sustainable Economy in a World of Finite Resources. Together with Dan O'Neill, thank you so much for speaking to KGNU and It's the Economy. Oh, thanks a lot, Claudia. It's great to be on your program. And thank you, Sam Daly-Harris, and thank you for listening to It's the Economy. Please do send any Twitter comments on the program using hashtag KGNU or call our comment line.
I've been your host, Claudia Craig. Have a very good evening. Now stay tuned for Highway 322.